All right, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you have a Bible, please turn with me there. If you don't, there should be a Bible somewhere nearby. Uh, or if you need to uh, get, get on your phone, please do. We are a Bible church. That's, that's what we do. We gather around the Bible. We look to it for instruction. We want to know more about God. This God that, we, that has saved us. This God that we love. We want to know how to please Him. We want to know what is not pleasing to Him so that we won't do those things. And so we, that's a big part of why we gather together on Sunday morning and we get into the Word and we just pick books of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so with that, we are now in Romans chapter 6. Allow me to, uh, to pray and we'll make some, uh, I'll make some opening statements and we will dig into the text. praise you father we thank you so much for your word thank you that you have delivered it to us that you have preserved it and here thousands of years later we have a copy of it for ourselves that we are able to read and uh, to learn and god we truly believe that you will speak to us through your word and so we we thank you for this time that we have i thank you for my brothers and sisters here i thank you for this family of believers And you love them so much, God. You love us so much. And I pray that as we open Your Word and as we study Romans chapter 6, that You would bring Your words to life right before us, God. That You would open our hearts, that You would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from Your Word. So we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, I titled this sermon, The Risen Life. I was saying in a way that's that's kind of... um, in a nutshell, the theme of this this chapter, you may have heard people refer to the Christian life as the crucified life, and I like that. Um, I like that because you, maybe you've heard the term "that's just my cross to bear." Maybe that's something perhaps you've heard a, a little more often. And generally, when people use that term, they're speaking of burdens. You know, they have uh, a boss that they just can't deal with, or some, some lot in life that is just very hard for them. And so they say, well, that's just my cross to bear. And that's, that's not really what that means. When Jesus says that we're to take up our cross and follow Him, that means we're to die. The cross was an instrument of death. It was brutal. It was torturous. And one thing you knew, when a guy was carrying a cross out of the town, he was not going to come back. He was going to die upon that cross. So when we talk about taking up our cross, what I'm saying is Rob needs to die. I need more Jesus and less Rob in this situation in my life. And so sometimes you'll hear people refer to the Christian life as the crucified life. And I understand that. I get the sentiment. I appreciate that. But it's more than just the crucified life. It's the risen life. Because Jesus is not on that cross. You know that? He's not in the grave. He's risen into the newness of life. And just as we have been crucified with Jesus, we have died to the old self. We have also risen with Him into the newness of life. So in this chapter, Paul's going to deal with our identity in Christ and our sanctification. That is, growing in our Christ-likeness. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 dealt at great length with uh, the depravity of men and women. That we have a sin nature, that we were dead in our trespasses, sin separated from God, that no one is good, no one does right, no one does good to the extent that they could be saved. We were all helplessly and hopelessly lost. That was our condition. Whether you get into the latter part of chapter 3, chapter 4, it deals with justification. That we can be saved 
through faith in Christ and the finished work of the cross. And our salvation is not in what we can do, but what has been done for us. And so that's justification. And now we're going to get into our identity. Who are we now in light of all of these truths? And uh, growing into that. Growing more and more into the image of Jesus. So that's what we're looking at today. The risen life. Identity and sanctification. That's where we're at in Romans. Now, chapter 5 kind of closed with this statement. I'll read verse 20 to you. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where sin abounds, grace what? superabounds. It abounds that much more. As bad as we may be, as bad, as deep, as dark as our sin may be, God's grace is greater. You cannot out the grace of God. Such is the, is the glories of the cross. And there's nothing that you have done or could do uh, that can make you uh, beyond reach in God's sight. There's no one, there's no one who's unredeemable. You understand that? And so when Paul makes that statement, he anticipates now some questions that are going to come, come forward. And so Paul's going to return back to, uh, you remember in chapter 3 we talked about uh, this question and answer method that Paul employs. He anticipates some arguments that might be put forth. Um, I told you how this was referred to a long, long time ago, an ancient form of teaching diatribe. When we hear diatribe now, we think of a long, heated rant. Or someone is scolding you. But that's not so, so much the case. It's a Socratic method of teaching. Socrates employed this. But also I would say that this was real common in Judaism. In the, um, in the synagogues. Uh, what was really impressive was not the person who knew all the answers. For us, that's, that's where it's at. We see someone who seems to have a great deal of knowledge. They have all the answers. We're impressed with that, right? Well, in the synagogue... Uh, era there in um, Israel and ancient Judaism, what they were most impressed with was the person who could ask the best questions. And so that was a big deal to them. Paul was a, a Pharisee and he grew up in the, in the synagogue and the rabbinical traditions. And so he understood this very well. So he could anticipate all kinds of questions that would come forth based on some of these outrageous statements that he had made. And as I said, this started in chapter 3, and we'll kind of see this, this method continue on throughout the book, especially in chapter 9. So, chapter 6 here is outlined with two questions. In verse 1 and then in verse 15, Paul is going to ask two questions and he's going to answer those questions. So the first question is, well, in light of the fact that where sin is, grace abounds that much more, first question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, should we just keep on sinning then? If God's grace is greater than my sin, well then let's just have a free-for-all and sin all we want to. That's the first question that, it, that he poses. The second one is in verse 15. Well, if we are no longer under the law but under grace, should we just continue to sin? And then he's going he's gonna to answer those one by one. So that's how this chapter is broken up. At verse 1 and verse 15, those two questions, and then Paul will respond to them. So at the heart of this question is a theological issue called antinomianism. Antinomianism. Maybe you've heard that before. It literally means against the law. And so these would be people who reject any kind of moral standard. 
I'm under grace. I've been forgiven. I'm not bound to keep any kind of law, any kind of moral code. I will just continue to sin all that I want to. It's basically like this. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. This is a great relationship. (laughs) And so that's antinomianism. Paul anticipates that. And he's going to address it head on. Now, people fear teaching grace to its fullest because they're afraid that that will be the natural response. If it's really that easy, if it's really all God's grace, if it really had nothing to do with me and my merit or my works, and I am secure in Him and I can't lose this, then why not just go on sinning all I want to? And so some people hold back. They don't teach that. What that's called is uh, cheap grace or uh, for the initiated sloppy agape. And so uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, speaking to this issue. He said, if you are preaching, if your preaching of the Gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, you're not preaching the Gospel of free grace of God in Jesus Christ. So what he's basically saying is if you preach it as you ought, the glorious gift that it is and how freely extended and how just God lavishes upon us, if you preach it as you ought, people will naturally ask the question, are you, is it really that simple? Is it really that easy? And they might even be provoked to ask that question. Are you saying then that I can just continue to sin? The answer is obviously not. But if you preach the free gift of grace as you ought to, it's not unusual for people to ask that question because it is hard for us to wrap our minds around, is it not? We, we believe in working for things in this country. Anything is yours if you work hard enough. And the idea that something so wonderful would just be given to us, we don't like that. We want to work for it. You know? And the rest of the religions around the world, that's exactly how it, how it works. You can do enough good to earn favor with God. If your good works outweigh your bad works, then you might be in with, with uh, that deity. And so it's hard for us. But Paul does. He preaches this free grace. He preaches it to the fullest. And he safeguards against the issue of cheap grace by pointing to our new identity in Christ. He preaches grace in its fullest. And he guards against this cheap grace by pointing to who we are in Christ and our sanctification, who we are growing into being as Christians. Does that make sense? All right. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If grace is so amazing, if it is so powerful, shall we just keep on sinning freely? Paul says, certainly not. Other translations say, God forbid, or may it never be. Now in the Greek, what this was originally uh, written in, it it is a a powerful statement. And it's outrage that someone would even think such a thing. I mean, it's that forceful. And I really don't think it comes through in the, in the English so well. Certainly not. May it never be. That, I just don't feel the, the anger uh, in that. But that, it, it's very forceful in the original. And Paul is answering that question in regard to our identity. You cannot continue to live a life of free sin 
because you have died with Christ and you have risen again into the newness of life. How shall we who died to sin continue any longer in it? That's how Paul answers that. And really the rest of this first portion in particular of uh, this chapter, this is the theme. How shall we who died to sin continue any longer in it? So verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So here he says that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptized into His death. Now as, as he goes on here, he really does use the the illustration of baptism, water baptism, to make a point. But this first verse here, verse 3, he's not talking about water baptism specifically. He's talking about being immersed into Christ. That word baptism, it was a common word in this day and age, and it didn't usually refer to water baptism as we understand it. We, we use baptize in this sense. Like if somebody is going to be a, a professional athlete, they're a rookie, well, they're getting ready to get baptized into professional athleticism, right? They're getting ready to understand the fullness of it. Um, pastor Bill would often say that to me my first year as a senior pastor when it would get really real. He'd say, you're getting baptized, you know? And sometimes we refer to it as, you know, a baptism by fire. You'll hear those kinds of things. And that's what Paul is talking about. We have been immersed into the death and the life of Jesus Christ. Our identity is in Him. We have been enveloped in what He has done. And, you know, I would say that for some Christians, unfortunately, it seems like they've only gone ankle deep. You know what I mean? It's a tragedy. They're just not seemingly walking in the fullness of what God has for them. Maybe some would go even shin deep or knee deep. And this is a very loose paraphrase of something that I, I heard from Spurgeon years ago, but it's so true. But we're called to go in over our heads. Amen? We are called to be immersed into this thing called Christianity, the church. Immersed into, enveloped in Christ's death and life. And Paul points to that very fact. Now he's going to use water baptism as an illustration for that very thing. And that's what it represents, water baptism. I don't want to minimize water baptism. I think sometimes when we say it's just a symbol, it represents something that people may think, well, we're making very light of baptism. It's a very special thing. It's a very holy and sacred gift that Jesus has given to His church. There's really two sacraments that the church Observes And one is water baptism. It's a one-time deal. And then the Lord's Supper, communion. And we do that regularly. And so it's a very special thing. And what it does represent is something very beautiful. And that is, just as Christ died, we too have died. We've gone down into the grave. That's what the water represents. We are immersed all the way under. And then, just as Christ rose again from the grave, we come up out of that water into the newness of life. In some ways, the water washing off of us represents sin being washed away. You know, that first breath of air that you breathe when you come up out of the water, it's that new life. I think in some ways you can even see the, the Spirit in that. When our eyes are open and the Spirit enters into us and we are born again and we see life with fresh eyes. 
the new man is seeing for the first time and we're breathing air in a very new way. We're breathing as a new creation in Christ. And that's what that represents. But that's already happened. When a person puts their trust in Christ for salvation, when they bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, when they repent of their sins, they are born again. Jesus says you must be born again. And it means born from above. It's a spiritual happening. It's, it's uh, not just mechanical. It's not just ritualistic. When we put our trust and our faith in Christ, we are born again, born from above. We are now in, endowed with that new nature, that, that spiritual nature that comes from the Father. We are filled with His Holy Spirit. And water baptism is a beautiful picture of that. And so when we get baptized... That is a public confession, a public proclamation that I have died and I have risen again, that I have decided to follow Jesus. And there's no turning back. And so Paul uses that illustration here. Uh, you cannot continue sinning freely uh, if you have died and risen again with Christ Jesus. You have risen into the newness of life. Live like it. Live like it. That's what he's trying to get across. You know, are we living like it? Are you living the risen life? Am I living the risen life? Have I truly died? Have I truly been immersed into what Christ has done? Have I truly identified with Him in it? Have I truly come into a new life? Am I really living like it? Or do I look suspiciously like that old man? I often ask people, is there a family resemblance? Do you look like your father? Do you sound like him? Verse 5 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been uh, freed from sin. So united in the likeness of His death. I've already talked about this a little bit. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He identified with the death of Christ. And then in Galatians 6.14, he says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ by which I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. So we identify with Jesus' death, with His cross. But we also identify with His resurrection. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, and then chapter 3, verses 1-3 through 3 says this, Therefore, if you have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? He's talking about the, the old law. And then in verse 1 of th uh, chapter 3, he says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So we identify with His death. We identify with His resurrection. Frankly, we, we identify with His ascension. Just as He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, we too are seated with Him. And we're not to be so caught up with the things of this world. Paul just said, I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. And we can get tangled up by the affairs of this life quite easily, can't we? Second Timothy talks about that. He says to, you know, 
as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, we don't want to be entangled with the affairs of this life so that we can please the one who has enlisted us as soldiers. We're to endure hardship, but we're not to get sucked into the cares of this life, of this world, to be distracted by lesser things, the temporal things, the physical things, right? We are to have our minds set upon God. We're to seek the kingdom and His righteousness and all of these other things will be added to us, the necessary provisions that we so often agonize about, right? Daily, that's what we're thinking about. How are we going to make it? How am I going to get this? How am I going to get that? But the Bible says don't worry about those things. Your Father already knows your needs better than you know your needs. You are to set your mind on things above. You are to seek God and His kingdom and His righteousness, and all those things will be added to you, right? So just as we have been crucified with Christ, we've risen into the newness of life, we have ascended with Him, and we are to have our minds set on heavenly things. I've heard people talk about other people who are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? I've heard it a bunch of times. I've just never met one of these people. And so I think that's a cop-out. And I want to be heavenly minded because I'm so earthly minded, I'm no heavenly good sometimes I feel like. And so it's not to be. We have died, we have risen, we're no longer slaves to sin, we're free from sin. We were once helplessly and hopelessly in bondage to sin. And now we are new in Christ. Now, there's a lot in what I just said there. And I'm sure that some of you are thinking, well, then why in the world am I still struggling like I am? And I can relate to that. Because the struggle is real, is it not? But the reality is, is the fact that there is a struggle now is, is wonderful. Because I'll tell you what, before Christ, there was no struggle. I just did what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, how I wanted to do it. And there was no regard to righteousness or godliness or anything of the sort. It was just a free-for-all. And so the difference is, now we do struggle. Because now that we're born again and we have the Spirit of God in us that desires godly things, the battle is on. The battle is on. And there is a war in our, our members and our flesh. Our flesh wants what it wants. But the, the new man, the, the Spirit of, of Christ that is in us, wants what it wants. And there is a battle and it is real. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. If you're struggling, praise God for that. That, that tells me that God is doing something in you. And I remember when I very first saw this in my own life. And some of you may have heard me tell this story. I went to a, uh, a faith-based rehab years ago and, uh, in Tennessee and in 2005. And I, I knew that I was ready to do business with God. So my second day in, I, I confessed Christ. I gave my life to Him, bowed the knee to Him. But I knew that the uh, first chance I got to smoke... Or, uh, I was going to, and that was prohibited in that program. You couldn't smoke, dip, anything like that. That was something I wasn't ready to give up. And so I, I did. I broke the rule. I got cigarettes. I smoked. A couple weeks went by, and uh, they, they sent us up to New Jersey to do a little uh, project at a church up there, a little work crew deal. And so I thought, okay, well, now I'll easily be able to get cigarettes because I'm working with all these construction guys. And I did. And I had that cigarette, and I remember the thought popped into my mind, I came here because I wanted to change. I came here because I wanted to be different. I didn't want to be like I used to be anymore. And this is that old behavior. This is that old man lying and scheming, conniving. And I gave the cigarette away 
And that was when it lit up. And I was like, wow, something's really changing in me. That is not normal. That is not normal behavior that I would even think like that or give the cigarette away. And I got excited because I realized that there was now the Spirit of God working in my life. I was convicted by that, by that uh, deceptive behavior, and I, I chose not to do it. And that was when it got really real. And I got fired up, and then I just got more and more excited about this new life in Christ. And have I continued to struggle at times in various areas? You better believe it. And we will struggle throughout this life. But we're, we're growing more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. We're growing to be more and more like Him. When we're justified, it's a done deal, as I said. We are new. God sees a new creation, and He is satisfied. Our sins are washed away. But at the same time, it's progressive. Progressive sanctification. We're becoming more and more like Jesus, less like our old self. And this is the, this is the, the sad part for me of it all. Is the, the more that you grow and the closer you get to God, I, sometimes I think the worse you feel. Because you become more sensitive to sin. You hate sin more. You're getting closer to God, closer to the light. And those little issues that are still in your life grieve you that much more. And in reality, you may be a lot farther along than you were, say, a couple years earlier, uh, but in some ways you still feel just as bad. And we can, with Paul, continue to say, Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm the chief of sinners. Because we hate that sin. We hate that, right? That's the new man. That is the new you in Christ that hates that. And so the battle rages. Well, verse 8, Paul says, Now if we die with Christ we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin, one, uh, to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as has already been stated over and over, we have died with Christ. We believe that we will live with Him. And then Paul says this, He who died, died once. Once for all. Never to die again. And might, might I add, it was brief. He died for a brief period of time. He was in that grave for three days, but death could not hold Him back. He was not subject to it. And He rose again, never to die again. He doesn't have to die over and over. He doesn't have to atone over and over. It's a one-time deal. His sacrifice that He made was perfect. And it does not need to be repeated. So what is this, He died to sin? MacArthur uh, puts it like this. Christ died to sin in two senses. In regard to sin's penalty, He met its legal demands upon the sinner. And in regard to sin's power, forever breaking its power over those who belong to Him. And his death will never need repeating. And so he died to sin's penalty and to sin's power, and so have we. We're no longer under the penalty of sin. We've been justified, forgiven, sin removed as far as the east is from the west, if you put your trust in Christ to that end, and sin's power has been broken. We do sin. We choose to sin. And sometimes, frankly, I'll just be very real with you, we choose to sin because we love our sin. And we want that sin. And we, we weigh it out and we choose sin over God in those moments. And um, frankly, the power of sin has been broken at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. 
uh, but it's still there. The battle is real, and, and we, we choose to give in to it. And I, I know that's hard for us to hear. It's hard for me to hear because sometimes it doesn't feel like it, does it? It doesn't feel like we're choosing. It feels like we are absolutely bound up in iniquity and that we are helpless and hopeless. And let me just say this, and I want to be very careful here. You know, sometimes the people who should be most secure in their faith are the least secure. There, I remember in Tennessee, I, I preached a message one weekend. I was so reluctant to preach it. I was downright scared because I just knew that it was going to be a very hard, very challenging message. And I could see people weeping out in the, in the congregation. It's probably the first and last time I have uh, seen that. I mean, I see a whole lot of snoring and snoozing, but not a lot of weeping. I mean, maybe weeping, wishing this thing would end already, but at any rate... Afterwards, I'm talking to some of these people and they're just broken and uh, so upset that they're not, you know, doing more. And I'm just thinking, man, you really weren't the one that I had in my crosshairs here, honestly. I mean, you were the last person that needs to be sitting here crying, wishing that you could do more. You're doing awesome. Keep doing it. The people that really needed to hear that, they just walk out the door whistling, hum dum da dum it just went right over their head. And unfortunately, it goes that way sometimes. And the reason I, I say that is because I'm going to say something very challenging here. And, you know, some people who are walking with the Lord, they love the Lord, they have a tender heart for Him, they struggle with assurance. Sometimes they think, do I even know God? Am I even saved? And I don't want to ever provoke someone to, to that if, uh, if it's, if it's uh, un unwarranted, unfounded. And so... I'm going to say that if this is you and you are absolutely bound up in sin and there is no victory for you whatsoever and you're freely living in it. You're freely living in it. You're not convicted by it. Um, you're happy to just continue on in this state. Then you may not know the Lord. You may not have died with Christ and risen again into the newness of life. And the Bible says that you should examine yourself to see whether you really be in the faith. And that's a very sober warning that Paul gives. And I, I give it to you here and now. And I've known people who have prayed the prayer. They've walked the aisle. And then they go on and they continue in their life of sin. And they're totally unaffected by it. They, they are quite happy, quite content to, to waller in, in the muck and the mud. You know, Paul, uh, Peter talks about this in First uh, Peter I think it's First Peter. It might be Second Peter, but he talks about that proverb: uh, "As a dog returns to its vomit, or a, a, a sow to to the mud." And the point he's making there is: you can take a pig, you can clean that thing up, you can put a bow tie on it, you can even put a cute little sweater on it, you can name it, bring it into the family, love that thing. But if you let it go, and the first chance it gets, what? It's going right back to that mud because it's still a pig. And so I'm not calling anybody names in here, all right? That's not the point I'm trying to make. But what I'm saying is he still has a pig nature. A dog goes back and eats its vomit because it has a dog nature. And so um, has that old man been crucified with Christ? Has that old woman truly been crucified with Christ? Have you truly been born again? Have you truly put your trust in Jesus for salvation? Some people, they struggle and they struggle and they are, they are in the battle and they love the Lord and they are constantly questioning their salvation and their assurance. And I hate to see that. I hate to see that. 
Uh, and that's why I mentioned earlier, if you're really struggling, if you have a real legitimate struggle and it hurts, it grieves you to the core, praise God. Praise God. That's a good sign. That means God's Spirit is working in you. He's working on you. And I am confident you're going to have that victory in God's timing. He who began a good work in you, what? Is faithful to complete it. Faithful to complete it. Alright, but now He is alive forevermore. Jesus died once to sin. He's alive forevermore. And we're told that we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus. I love that word reckon. We use it quite a bit where I'm from. I reckon so. And it has a slightly different meaning because, you know, that is kind of to say, I guess. You know, think it's going to rain tomorrow? I reckon. I guess. Maybe. But uh, it's not the way Paul means it. Account it as so. It's a counting term. It is as good as done. You need to see yourself. You need to understand it's in the bank. Mark it down. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Christ has died and rose, uh, risen again forevermore. You have identified with Him in that. And you need to account yourself, reckon yourself alive to God. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So since we are dead to sin and alive to God, we are not to actively, freely sin. We don't have that, that option anymore. We don't have that liberty, nor would we want that liberty and we're told not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies, obeying its lusts. So now the battle is joined. We're not to allow ourselves to just be given to sin. Our mortal bodies, our physical bodies, are no longer to be freely given over to the lusts of the flesh. Uh, we're, we are not to engage in those things anymore, obeying the lusts. You know, the... We have this fallen world system, this corrupt world that we live in that is pulling on us constantly. We have an enemy of our soul, Satan, who is constantly pulling on us and he's using every resource available to, to draw us in. And then we have this flesh that we are battling with, this, this uh, sin nature that we are battling with. And we're told that we're not to give in to that. We're not to allow those things to, to, have, uh, dom, dom, to dominate us or to reign in our, in our bodies. And Galatians 5.16 is a great verse. It says, Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do the things that you wish. The two are contrary to each other. There's a war here and we are to choose righteousness. We are to walk in the Spirit. And that means be led by the Spirit. Submit to the Spirit. That's not some weird mystical thing. Okay, To walk in the Spirit means to live a life according to that which is pleasing to God. As, as the Spirit is in us and is prompting you by His Word to obey, obey it. When you have a situation in front of you, you know that cigarette thing really followed me for years. After I got out of the program, the battle was still there. I still wanted to smoke. And uh, I remember one day thinking... I really want to smoke. 
um, I'm really convicted about this. I really don't want to smoke. And uh, I have a choice to make. And if I choose not to smoke, you know what I'm choosing? I'm choosing God. I'm choosing God. I'm obeying the Spirit. The Spirit that uh, was drawing me towards righteousness. And we are not to present our members as instruments of unrighteousness. We don't usually use this kind of language so often, but our body, our eyes, our mouth, our hands, our feet. We're not to allow our body, our mind, to be given over as weapons or tools of unrighteousness. We did that for a long time, but we're not to do that anymore. Now our body is to be given to, uh, to God for righteousness. We are to be, you know, we often pray that, God, may I be an instrument for you. Would you use me? May I be a vessel? We have all those little Christian cliche words that we use, but the idea is there. God, we want to be used by you. We want to be used for your glory. Uh, for far too long, we were um, an instrument in the enemy's hand, but now I want to be an instrument in the, in the Redeemer's hand. Amen? I want to be used by Him for good. And so that's what Paul is saying. You've died. You've risen again. Now give your body over as an instrument of righteousness to God. And this is just like Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So we are to give our lives over to God. It's a sacrifice, but it's not a dead sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. I am alive to God in Christ, and I will serve Him and obey Him, and I'm giving myself over to His service. Sin shall no longer have dominion over me. And then he says, so you are no longer under the law, but under grace. And so it's interesting that, that phrase, for sh uh, sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law but under grace. What's the correlation there? Well, what the law does essentially is curse us because we can't keep the law. The law was given to demonstrate some things to us about God and about ourselves. And one thing is for sure, we cannot save ourselves by the law so we end up damned by the law. But he says we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. So this leads us to the next question. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So again, antinomianism. Since it's all grace... Are we free to sin as much as we want? Since we're not under the law, since we're not bound to keep the law, the, the law of Moses in the Old Testament, are we free to sin? And again, he says, certainly not. It's that same language. And then he says this, really interesting. We are all slaves. We are all servants. You're either a servant to Satan and to death, to the flesh, or you're a servant to God, to Jesus. And so... Whoever you serve, you're that one's slave. And so if you are a servant of sin, then you're a slave to sin. And that shows who you really belong to, who your master is. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. And so if you serve righteousness, that is a demonstration to whom you belong. We belong to the Lord and we're slaves of righteousness. Well, verse 17 
He says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you delivered, which, uh, to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you, shall, you become slaves of righteousness. So God be thanked. God be praised that you believe from the heart that God, God approached us first, that God intervened in our lives, that God stirred our hearts, that God made it possible for us to respond to Him. And he says, to that form of doctrine which you were delivered. The word form, it's like a mold that something is poured into. And doctrine is, is teaching. So that mold of teaching, that is the gospel message that you were entrusted to, that word delivered. You entrusted yourself to the gospel message, gospel teaching. You were shaped by it. You were set free from sin and you were made a slave of righteousness. So verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So Paul says, I'm speaking in human language here because of the weakness of your flesh. He's using everyday language that the Roman recipients would understand. He's using common language. And there are a number of things in this chapter that they would understand very well. Crucifixion, for one, that was something that was invented by, by Rome, and it was something that they saw pretty regularly. But also, this idea of slavery. I mean, it was rampant in the Roman Empire. Millions and millions and millions of slaves. And so, when Paul uses this language, they know what Paul is saying. It's having the uh, intended effect. It's supposed to be shocking and, and real. And so, Paul uses that language and he basically says, just as you gave yourself entirely to the pursuit of sinful conduct, you were its slave. Now you're to give yourself entirely to the pursuit of holiness. You're to be its slave. And it's amazing to me. I think about some of the things that I did in my past life. If I gave just a fraction of the energy and effort towards godliness and holiness that I gave towards ungodliness, oh man, I'd be light years ahead. I remember thinking when I first uh, was in that program and we were walking around uh, this neighborhood and, and handing out flyers for the thrift store that was connected to um, this, this ministry that I was in, U-Turn for Christ. And I was just scared to go door to door. And it was like an elderly community. And I remember thinking, man, I would walk right up in the middle of a drug-infested, violent neighborhood at 3 in the morning and bang on some stranger's door. And now I'm scared of a little old lady. <laughs> and I thought, what is up with this, you know? And if I would just give half of that same boldness and courage to, to the gospel that I used to give to serving my flesh. Man, and that's what Paul is saying here. You were a slave to, to your flesh and you served it with all your heart. Now you're a slave to righteousness. Serve God with all your heart. You know, the Scriptures are replete with uh, admonitions to pursue Christ-likeness. Just absolutely full. Just to name a few. 1 Timothy 4.7 says we're to exercise ourselves unto godliness. He says physical exercise is of some benefit. But godliness is great. It holds benefit for now and for eternity. We're to exercise ourselves unto godliness. You're to work out. It's hard. That word exercise there, it means to, to toil, to struggle to the point of collapse. Absolute exhaustion. We are to work at this thing. Godliness can be hard. The disciplines of the faith can be challenging. 
But we are to give ourselves to this. We are slaves to righteousness and we are to work at growing in Christ-likeness, looking more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world, the old man. Ephesians 4.22 says we're to put off the old man and put on the new. There's a choice every day you get up. Are you going to look like the old man? Are you going to put that off and put on the new man? And in that, he gives some, some uh, examples of how to do that. He said, you know, you who used to steal, steal no more. I mean, that's step number one, okay? We'll pat you on the back for that, all right? You used to steal, don't do that, all right? But it doesn't stop there. He says, work with your own hands that you might have something to give to him who has a need. And that's what it's all about. I'm not only not stealing anymore, but I'm sacrificially working, sacrificially working to be able to help people who are in need. That's the complete turnaround. That is putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Philippians 2.12, it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean to somehow earn your salvation. The idea is now that you're saved, work out that sanctification. Work hard at it. Aggressively pursue the Lord. Get in His Word. Read the Bible. Pray. Enjoy Christian fellowship. You know, that's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for us to get into a community. We like to isolate. Uh, but you've got to work at this, guys. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. You have to insert yourself into Christian community. Be a part of this family. And so these are all things that we have to work at. Naturally, these are things that we would not do. But we are to give ourselves to godliness. And we are to engage ourselves in the battle. And we are to put on the new man and exercise ourselves unto godliness. Verse 20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. I love how he says that. You were free in regard to righteousness. That is to say that I had no regard for that which was right and no constraint from that which was wrong. You know? You were free in regard to righteousness. It was not even a concern for you. It wasn't even on your radar. He says, but what fruit did you have in those things of which you are now ashamed? I'll tell you what kind of fruit. Rotten fruit. That's what my old life was. It was a whole lot of rotten fruit. Burned bridges. Damaged relationships. It was just a, a, a wasteland. That's what it was. He said, the end of those things is death. You know, the Bible says that well, actually, I don't think the Bible says it, but this is just a saying within Christianity that you know the pleasures of sin are for a season. You know there is some pleasure to sin, but it's temporal; it doesn't last. Don't be deceived. If that's you in this life, and you are a slave to sin, you're kind of new in this thing, and you're thinking that this is where it's at, and that you're enjoying it, and you're having fun in life. Don't be deceived, because it will not last, and it will end badly for you. And then you'll be able to say, you know, I'm ashamed of that. You know, that was rotten fruit. My prayer for, for the young folks, especially our children in the children's ministry, is that they would grow up and they would never know a life of rebelliousness. That their testimony would be that of serving the Lord from a, from a very small youth. And that they wouldn't have these things of which they're ashamed, this rotten fruit. Well, verse 22 it says, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now we have good fruit. Now we have good fruit in Christ. 
God-glorifying, kingdom-advancing, others-blessing lives. We live for, uh, to bless and to serve other people, not to take, not to get, not burning bridges and relationships, but building bridges, building relationships, seeing God do an awesome work in our lives and other people's lives, seeking to be a blessing to other people. We have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, and everlasting life. Everlasting life. We will be in the presence of God our Father for eternity. And that is the greatest thing. That's what heaven is. It's not so much a place. I really don't think we're going to care much about the streets being made out of gold um, when we are standing in the glory of God. When we are standing in the glory of God. We're told that the wages of sin is death. Sin's paycheck is death. Sin's paycheck is death. Payday is coming. You understand that? We look forward to payday, don't we? This is a payday you don't want. This is a check that you do not want to cash. But it's got your name on it. It's got your name on it. If you don't know Christ. But we're told that God's free gift is eternal life. And what is that gift? It's His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that if you put your trust in Him, if you believe in Him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. You see, we were damned. We stood guilty before God, helplessly, hopelessly lost, nothing that we could do about that. But God, who is rich in mercy, paid the price for us. He sent His Son, the Son of God, to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve to die. Specifically for Rob Rainey. Specifically for you guys in this room. And if you put your trust in Him, if you put your faith in Him, then you will be forgiven. You will have everlasting life. Your sin debt was paid at the cross. Your sin debt was washed away if you put your trust and your faith in Him. And just as He died and rose again, so too shall you die to sin and rise again into the newness of life. And then, the only thing that awaits you is glory. The only thing that awaits you is glory. And this paycheck of death is ripped up and thrown away because that sin debt was paid. That sin debt was paid at the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I plead with you, today is the day of salvation. Put your trust in Him. May that sin debt be paid at the cross on your behalf and may you walk in the newness of life. May you die with Him. May you rise with Him into the newness of life. May you be a slave of righteousness. May that be your identity in Christ. And may that be the road upon which you walk. May that be the trajectory of your life. That you are being sanctified. You are new in Him and you are growing in Him until that glorious day. Amen? Amen. Pastor Bill, you got a song for us? Let me pray for us. Father, we love You and we, we praise Your glorious name. And we thank You that You have saved us. As many of us have believed on, on Your Son, Lord, we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and set free. We are new in Christ. The old man is gone. The new has come. And help us, Lord, as we walk on this path of righteousness and we do battle sin, God, and it's real. In this world, it's pulling on us. And we have an enemy of our souls that hates us and hates You. And I pray that You would give us the strength by Your Spirit to overcome in Your name. 
We praise You, Father. May we be slaves of righteousness. May we serve You with all of our might. Even more than we used to serve sin and unrighteousness. Especially more. So we praise You, God, and we bless You. In Jesus' name, Amen.